Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Steve Kerr here, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and uh, observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. We have a special guest with us today, somebody I had the privilege of uh, working with during my time in Colorado. Many of you know I did about eight years uh, in Colorado as the head of emergency management, business continuity, and security for a utility in Colorado Springs. And I was fortunate to uh, have an opportunity to work with people across the state, even though we were uh, a local utility. Um, Lori Hodges founded an organization, I believe, called the Colorado Emergency Management Roundtable, which we'll talk about and some projects associated with that. Welcome to the show, Lori. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks Thanks for having me. Of course. I'd like to hear about your background, but I'm most interested about hearing you about your EMS background. I understand you just uh, uh, published a book or writing a book? Uh, yes, I have a book that's going to be out in July, kind of mid-July, July 17th. It's called Shaking in the Forest, Finding Light in the Darkness. And uh, the book is about my experiences as a paramedic it's also a book that centers around trauma and how we cope. Uh, so it talks about how the EMS folks cope, but then also how um, those lessons from EMS uh, transferred into my regular world. My EMS experience has directly given me a multi-decade career, 40, year, 40 years in emergency management. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was the soft skills. It was the leadership. It was the having to understand what firefighters do, what police do. And because you're kind of, you know, man, respectfully, man in the middle, you know, person exactly. in the middle. And <laughs> and you, you have to work with everybody. So uh, where were you a paramedic? I was a paramedic up in Summit County in Colorado, the mountains. Um, I worked for the, um, mainly I, I was the Keystone Ambulance for the Keystone Ski Resort. Uh, so that was my oh. main um, duty location, but all, all over Summit County. Okay, I know the area generally. Colorado Springs is not a ski town, in case I know you would know that, but people listening don't know that. So if I had to, I don't ski, but if we were going to go folks to ski or visit the ski towns, we had to drive a couple hours into the mountains, into the Breckenridge area or, or the Keystone area, which is pretty close. Yeah, so, a lot of long transfers, that's for so, sure. So my experience as an urban paramedic in New York City is probably a little different than your experience uh, in Summit County, yet um, when you're at the scene of a job or you're in the back of the box, as we say, um, that's pretty much the same. Absolutely. The, yeah, the big things that um, that I learned were mainly about how to read a room, how to read people, 
um, how to watch the scene to see when it's going to go bad, you know, and all of that stuff definitely transfers over into whatever you do in your career, you know, um, with those lessons and whether you're in an urban environment, probably an urban environment more so because you're going to have more threats that might be out there that you got to watch out for. Um, but in the rural area as well, and in our job, most of our threats were cars that were going to plow into us on the highway <laughs> or the interstate. Oh, we had that. We certainly had that. I mean, in New York City, there are highways that that circumvent the city, arteries that go through the city and around the city. In fact, one of our first EMS deaths was uh, an auto accident. Uh, an, an EM, an EMT was struck by an auto uh, on a highway in Brooklyn, I believe. And, uh, and so yeah, people so, so see those lights and they just head straight for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah, it's great. So, um. Transport times. I mean, you wouldn't. Okay, so at the time I was a paramedic, which was not quite horse and buggy, but not long thereafter. Uh, we only had. So I was a paramedic in Brooklyn. We only had one trauma center at the time. Now that now there's a trauma center, probably every twelve or fifteen minutes from every from any street corner. I don't right. know the exact number on that, but so I have one particular incident I'm thinking of. Uh, a gunshot. Uh, individual shot twice to the chest, thoracic trauma, and I got about a 12-mile run to the trauma center. But it's not an open highway run. These are through streets with red lights, and uh, I, I'll I'll give up some age here. I was a paramedic in 19... So I started the job in 1980 as an EMT. 82, 83, 84, I'm a paramedic on the street. So... I, t I have to give that up because I'm going to say something you're probably going to smile at. So we're running a hot trauma across the borough to the trauma center. And I got the mass trousers on the patient. You know what the mass trousers yeah. are, right? For those that are listening, the inflatable pants that came out of military trauma, they inflated at the legs and the, and the abdomen to transfuse, auto transfuse blood to what was thought to be the, the core uh, uh organs of the body and i thought they worked and i got two glass bottles of serum albumin hanging and okay there you go smile because not all of, and i have um i have a, a cop i have a police officer squeezing a bag of uh, ringers or, or normal normal saline and i gotta run you know i'm in the back and you know everybody we're doing what we can but i'm just saying you wouldn't think about it, but there was a time where we would have a run to, and I'm thinking about this part of Brooklyn. The closest trauma center is still not, not very close to the Coney Island area, which is a, a resort area, sort of a beach area in Brooklyn. So what were your transport times like? Well, our transport times were a lot longer because it's a rural area. So, and also because of the weather in Colorado and we didn't have a hospital up in summit County when I was a paramedic up there. So uh, we had to either go to Vail with patients to a clinic in the county that could then maybe stabilize them and either fly them out or um, get a critical care transport. Um, a lot of us were critical care paramedics because of that reason. So we could give blood, we could do uh, drug um, uh, drug pumps and all of that. Uh, so my most um, my patient that was the worst patient I had as a paramedic who broke pretty much almost everything. Uh, we had a four-hour transport to Denver with him um, in a critical care uh, ambulance because of the fact that we were in blizzard conditions. Um, it was I-70 traffic for the skiers, so it was like rush hour for ski traffic. 
Um, so everything was really going against us. And then during that transport, we gave eight units of blood and 13 liters of saline. And uh, we ran out of oxygen. So we had to meet up halfway in um, Clear Creek County to meet up with another ambulance to, to give us some additional oxygen. So that was probably my worst patient, but also the best. He had a great outcome um, from that, but all of the odds were totally against him for that with the amount of time that it took us to try to get him to a um, to an operating room where they could actually try to- It, it goes to show you how, I, I would have thought my experience was similar to that. I guess it was, but for a much shorter time frame. I mean, that, that's incredible. And having experienced what I have come to understand to be a Colorado blizzard, especially where, where I was in Colorado Springs, because the blizzard had a different meaning because we were at the foothills of the Rockies, but also the beginning of the Great Plains. And Colorado blizzard is something extraordinary. Uh, so I worked the bomb cyclone blizzard, as did you in 2019, in March 2019. And we had the lowest barometric pressure in uh uh, it was um, east of Colorado Springs, probably more east of Castle Rock. And we had about something to the tune of 920 millibars. I mean, that is hurricane level barometric pressure. And we clocked winds at the Colorado Springs airport somewhere around 110 miles an hour. And we had, um, you know, you have to tell the story because we were leading into an emergency management discussion. You have to tell the story about the life you and I lived and you still live. And uh, a little envious, Miss Colorado. But we had, um, you know, and this is after days of public uh, announcements, you know, warning announcements, public messaging, stay off the roads. In El Paso County, which is the county, for those that don't know, where Colorado Springs is located, we had 2,200 cars stalled, right. stuck in, in the snow with people trapped. Jim Reed, who you know as well, was the emergency management director at the time in Colorado, El Paso County, and he talks about it on an episode he did for this podcast, if anybody wants to hear about it. And it's hard. It's hard because you have to put firefighters and EMS and sheriff personnel on the road at a time they shouldn't be on the road. And because of the winds and the quantity of snow, cars are literally, you can't see them. They're completely buried. They're, um, people uh, can barely get out, get a window out and get a, you know, like just to get oxygen. This is, yeah. this is not something I'm, I'm like, you know. Uh, making up it it is it is extraordinary so driving through that for four hours wow yeah yeah with a oh. patient who's barely hanging on in the with back a patient who's who's hanging on yeah, yeah. you know uh, i do say a lot to our folks here um you can't change human nature and so while we tell everybody to stay home we try to put out all the warnings we also also have to plan for the fact that people are just going to ignore all of that stuff. <laughs> just yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, once they're rescued and working at the utility, we had snow cats because we had uh, the utility I worked for had infrastructure across eleven counties, the bulk of it in in the mountains because we had twenty six reservoirs and dams, high hazard dams. My team was responsible for from the emergency management perspective, but the utility from a, you know, uh, engineering perspective and operations perspective would use the snow cats to get up there. In fact, we deployed one once during a, during an emergency to a dam because it was nine feet of fallen snow, not even drifted snow. And they had to get up there to, to do some, to do some valve work. But the ones that we had in the city, we deployed and we, we um, had uh, 
they responded to the request from the El Paso County Office of Emergency Management and Sheriff's Office to to put these you know u- utility vehicles on the road to help make rescues but once you make these rescues 2200 people now they still have to be sheltered so yeah, exactly. all, all all along uh i-25 and woodman the woodman corridor there are firehouses and churches and community centers that the county emergency management red cross probably salvation army have to work so it's it's colorado weather is is extraordinary and uh, i am i'm proud to have experienced it and grateful because it's another important part of my career we have another we have a similar storm coming in this weekend so we're supposed to have minus 25 and minus 35 degrees wind chill um uh, throughout the entire weekend it's a prolonged event with a couple of feet of snow so and with high winds and so that's all going to add up to blizzard conditions so hopefully people stay off the road <laughs> So, so in 2021, I think it was February, I think it was 21, when they had that statewide power event in Texas where the ERCOT system failed, we had minus 15, minus 21 degrees in Colorado Springs. So we don't, we don't talk much about it because we didn't have impact, but the, um, the electric uh, generation transmission distribution system and the, uh, and the, uh, the natural gas system was under duress to to put it kindly and uh, we didn't lose the system but we experienced similar weather pattern so yeah i get it i get it and you know i say this sitting in in west palm beach florida now where it's 81 degrees and um, i'm you know I, I still miss it i still miss colorado it was it was it was a great it was a great thing so i don't like anything over 70 so <laughs> i couldn't do florida. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I said I'd never live in Florida. I think it's it's too hot here. Although we're we're in the forties and fifties this time of year. And and that's interesting. People don't realize that. You've heard about the fallen iguanas, right? I no. mean so, oh, so at about at about oh, fifty the degrees the iguanas fall out of the trees and they could actually cause harm to people. But once they thaw and the temperature comes up, they're fine. They don't they don't die from this. But this is the thing. You see you see iguanas like you know sitting laying on the on the on the beach areas yeah it's 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 one of those one of those strange things okay tell us about a little more of your background because that that's going to talk it uh, tie it directly into um your crisis management story and it, if if it's okay I'd like to talk a little bit about a project you and I worked on part of that round table i mentioned the emergency management is a complex adaptive system okay that yep yeah, so I started off as a EMT volunteer firefighter for Franktown Fire, um, and that's kind of more in. The- so Franktown, east of Col- east of Castle Rock. Yes. And we had Chris Malliard on the show, and he is uh, was a firefighter and EMT in in uh, in Franktown. That's funny to have two people from. Do you know Chris? No, I don't know that we served at the same time. I was um, I lived in Franktown, and so it was kind of my. I grew up there went to high school in Franktown. And so I already knew all those folks. So when I became an EMT, they took me. Okay. In. He's a paramedic and he's a hospital emergency manager in Boulder. And he did a, an episode of the Marshall fire. So oh, okay. it's a, yeah, okay. it's in the, it's in the uh, list of episodes. If you want to, okay. you want to listen to it. Yeah. yeah so I started there and then I was in school at um, a community college for fire science. And I saw a fax come through for EMTs up in summit County. And so 
I, uh, I took that fax, I looked for a job and I got the job. And so I started at Keystone Ski Resort for a while. And then I was eventually um, a paramedic at Summit County Ambulance once I went through paramedic school. And then I was a resident firefighter up there, um, which was volunteer, but I lived in the fire station. And then from there, I became a local emergency manager in Park County, which is a neighboring county near there. And then I worked for the state for a number of years as a field manager. So that's where um, Stephen and I uh, <laughs> probably ran into each other the most was the Waldo Canyon fire, where I was the field manager for the state uh, working that fire, which was in Colorado Springs. Actually, with the Waldo Canyon fire that I believe brought me to Colorado, they went, oh, okay. the utility went looking for uh, uh, an opportunity to, to to build a program at that point. But Park County, so both in your role as a state coordinator, I've, I've forgotten that you were with the state, uh, was it called? Uh, it was called the Division of Emergency Management at the time. At the time, not yeah. Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Correct. Uh, it was yeah. the, and uh, you, I've forgotten that you were, and Park County, we have um, infrastructure there. So you, you must have interacted with, with the utility at some point. Yeah, the Heyman fire, which was at the, oh, time, yeah. the largest fire in Colorado's history. Um, that's why I was hired in Park County was it was right after the Heyman fire and they were looking for an emergency manager to kind of manage some of that recovery stuff. Um, and that that fire actually involved um, three or four different counties. I forget now. Uh, but uh, yeah, we were all impacted. And then the flooding that came from that, we were all trying to work through that as well. So that was a tremendous growth opportunity for me, Lori. Um, I like to say this and people usually get a chuckle. I come from New York City and I was in the fire department on the EMS side, nonetheless worked very closely with the suppression and rescue side, of course. And we have, like I like to say, we have some wildfires in New York City, but yeah. we don't have wildfires. <laughs> and working in Colorado and experiencing both the preparedness uh, requirements and planning and exercises, and then actually participating in the response to actual wildfires was another growth opportunity for an urban guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoyed working for the state. Uh, I do like the local level a little bit better. So I've been with Larimer County now as the director of emergency management for 10 years. I was also brought here. I'm a little bit of a black cloud in our field. I've been known as that since Park County. We had a number of incidents in Park County when I was there, and then there were a number of incidents at the state when I worked there. But Larimer County had two major events, the 2012 High Park Fire, which was the most destructive fire in Colorado's history at the time, and then the 2013 flood, um, which happened the year following, which um, destroyed multiple canyons within the county and caused about $110 million in damages. Uh, so I, I worked that flood. That was my first uh, disaster in New York, in rather in Colorado. So I arrived in August, and uh, uh, just two or three weeks later, there was this statewide flood disaster that was a presidentially declared flood event, and uh, we had uh, la we had landslides, we had flooding in Colorado Springs, but the 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 the, the damage and destruction was farther north, and the utility I worked for had sent mutual aid to uh, Excel Energy for uh, natural on the natural gas side and safety teams and worked a mutual aid response to that. We had uh, uh, we had our so the emergency management team had a small team in place. You know, we were doing stuff. We weren't formally activated. We were still developing that, but it was uh, again another great opportunity and then to work with uh City OEM at the time this is before El Paso County OEM and the city merged with city OEM and then state emergency management. Um, Paul Eller, I think, was the regional coordinator yeah. at the time. And then we had, uh, you know, the uh, 
you're doing the PDAs and the damage assessments and all that stuff. Yeah, I was hired because of both of those events to kind of manage the recovery, but then also to create a more robust emergency management program here in Larimer. So I'm still here in Larimer. I like it here a lot. And they've kept me busy here since then. We've I, had a number of I, events that have happened. And for the people that don't know, where is Larimer County in, in Colorado? Larimer County is the farthest north you can go in Colorado. It, it butts up to Wyoming and it's right in the middle of the state. Uh, so Cheyenne, where Cheyenne Frontier Days is, uh, that's just north of us, as well as the um, the Wyoming uh, University. I don't know what the university is called, but it's in uh, Laramie, uh, the town of Laramie in Wyoming. So Mike Gavin is a friend of the show and a friend of mine, probably a friend of yours as well. And exactly. I, I think he likes to think he's the farthest north, but he's not. He's <laughs> uh, I think Mike's in Fort Collins and uh, he's uh, he's another really exceptional emergency manager, fire officer, and great to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. We worked together on a project that really you were, you, you led, and uh, there was a, a paper that was issued. I was not a named author on the paper. I remember doing reviews and participating in the, uh, in the workshops. And uh, that was, uh, that was really, uh, it was really great. I really enjoyed the, the the discussions with some really smart people and the the out the output from this project which was called uh, emergency management is a complex adaptive system and the kinefin network i may have not butchered that too bad kinevin uh, the kinevin <laughs> framework that sort of forms the uh the, the structure around sort of the decision-making. Could you speak a little bit about that? And we could chat about that. Yeah, so uh, kind of a little bit of background. When I was a baby emergency manager, um, I was stressed a lot thinking that I needed to have all the answers, know, have a plan for every type of event. And when I learned about complexity science and complexity theory, uh, I realized that th that was great. It was very freeing to me. Because uh, complexity theory really told me that one, I can't predict everything. You know, chaos theory and complexity tells you you can't predict everything that's going to happen. Um, things are too complex, and therefore there are too many variables. Uh, so if you have a plan, the plan's going to go off the rails. So in a way, that was a way for me to say, okay, I I'm never going to know everything I need to know in here in this field. So what we ended up doing from there was we started to really look at. How do you build a program based upon unknowns, which is really what we're facing today? It's too complex. Our technology is too complex. And therefore, you need a more flexible system to try to move through chaos instead of trying to control it. And so um, that's what really led to I've done a bunch of research on chaos theory and complexity theory. I'm doing my dissertation on complexity theory and chaos in emergency management and in the business world about how to build programs with the principles of complexity in mind. And so the emergency management as a complex adaptive system was the emergency management roundtable for Colorado was a group of emergency managers at the local and state levels who got together to look at various different issues facing us. And one of those issues was how do you change the model that we've been using since the 1960s and make it more relevant for today's world? And so that's really what that, that project started out as. And uh, the Kinevin model is a really good model for that because it shows you that you have to have different decision-making models depending on what you're facing, whether it's a simple event versus a complex, complicated, or chaotic event. You can't use the same uh, 
checklist. You can't use the same standard operating procedures. You have to be flexible enough to change that so that you can manage those types of events. So this came up in discussion in social media this week because uh, I had posted something about the OODA loop, observe, orient, uh, decide, act. Uh, as a potential decision-making tool in emergency management, because that's come up as a number of times on the show in different episodes. And then uh, somebody mentioned the uh, Pinevin network. And then I, I mentioned, uh, you know, this project and I tagged you and you, uh, you acknowledge that. I think, I think the OODA loop and, and this framework are way different. I think, I think the OODA loop is probably for spot decision-making uh, rapid fire, you know, sudden onset in the EOC stuff is happening. Uh, decisions where the the, um, the kind of a network that that supports the uh, the uh, complex adaptive system model is probably for a more contemplative, more thoughtful approach. Would you agree to that? Actually, I would say that the OODA loop is good probably for the chaotic environment because you're not going to know everything that's going on and your and um, patterns aren't going to emerge for you. So within that environment, you have to just start acting. You have to stop the bleeding and figure out things. And then you start to see a pattern as you start to make some decisions. And then once you see that pattern, you get more into that complex world where you can make some decisions that are going to get you out of that chaos. So the OODA loop is it, it, the way that you just described. It would be where you have to act. You have to make decisions based upon the information that you have, um, the best information that you have. But then as you go forward, you're trying to obviously get to a point where you have really good information and you know that those decisions are going to uh, be the most beneficial out of all the decisions that you can make. Um, but that's really that chaotic environment within the Kinevin framework, I think, is where that would fit. So one model, if, if, I, if I hear what you're saying correctly, one model leading into another model. Correct. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a way in which to make decisions for a specific type of event. And the Kinevin framework has all four types of events within it and how you change your decision-making based upon those types of events. So if it's a simple thing, it's a house fire you've done 8,000 times, um, it's, it's simple, you use your SOP, no worries there, you know how to make those decisions. If it's complicated, then you have to change that up a little bit, but you still know it's a known environment, right? So you still are able to move through that environment with plans, procedures. When you get into the complex or, or the chaotic environment, you're working in the unknowns more. So you have to make some decisions, not knowing if that decision is going to give you the outcome that you want, but you make the best decisions with the information that you have until you can start seeing the patterns that emerge that then you can use SOPs or any other information that you have. So that's what I think we need in emergency management because we're facing many instances where it's, it's not something we've ever done before. There aren't known instances of it that you can go back and look at best practices and you just have to move through that environment in a way that's flexible and adaptable enough to where your people don't get stressed and you're able to see how your decisions can, can make the community better, right? And then once you start to see a pattern emerge, you grab onto that pattern and then you can move forward. Very academic, but also very applicable to operations. <laughs> I, I, I think that's fine. I know you have an advanced degree. Is that from the Naval Postgraduate School? Yeah, I have two master's degrees. So one is from the CU Denver the University of Colorado at Denver. And then the other one is from the Naval Postgraduate School. One's in defense studies, so Homeland Security and Defense. Right. And then the other one is in political science and public policy. Okay. 
Excellent. And it sounds like you're doing a doctoral degree, what you're saying. Yeah, I'm in the middle of a PhD. I'm, I'm starting on the dissertation work now. And what I want that to be is how we can take the lessons that have been learned in business administration from complex multinational businesses that deal in complex problems all the time. How do you take those lessons and complexity and bring them into the emergency management world so we can build programs that are better suited for the problems that we're going to face in the future instead of the, the simple problems or the complicated problems? No one better than you the, to do that research. I saw you present on complex systems at one of the Colorado state conferences, I believe. I think it's the first time we actually met in person down in Colorado Springs. We had it there, I think, like three three years in a row. That I guess the uh, the SEMA, Colorado Emergency Management Association, had a multi-year contract with the hotel. So it was fine. It was uh, So I think that was the first time we met. And I, I remember you doing that. And uh, it was impressive. And because uh, I, I have... In my master's, I have a Homeland Security degree, Long Island University. We studied complex systems and, you know, the sand pile effect and, and you know, all the that. box sand pile. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, per box and, and, you know, and we talk about you know, complexity theory and stuff like that. So I I think I got it. And uh, and when you put the, the, the all call out for EM statewide to work on the um, – on the uh, MCAS, uh, I, I I jumped right on it. So thank you for that opportunity. Oh no worries. I think it's uh, I think it's where we're headed. So I'm trying to get more people on board. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so because the, the the emergency management profession is, I think, just on the other side of a crossroads. But we still need to steer it somehow. Yeah. You know, emergency exactly. management is growing. It's in all corners of the world. It's in business. It's in, you know, I just had recorded an episode on global crisis management and global corporations have, maybe they call it crisis management or business continuity or resilience. But when these three high rollers I had on, on a panel are posed with the question, at the end of the day, it's, it, it really is what you and I would consider emergency management, maybe, yeah, with exactly. some, maybe with some twists and turns. Okay. I think that's a great segue into you have a wildfire to talk about and chaos theory. And, uh, and I think there's really some good lessons there. Well, yeah, I think that 2020 is a really good example of why we need to change our models. And so 2020, obviously we had the pandemic that had occurred um, early in the year, but in the middle. And so that pandemic alone was an unknown. The information was changing every day. Nobody really knew how it was going to impact each different jurisdiction. We didn't know if we'd have the supplies that we needed. There were a ton of unknowns there. And so in that case, unless you have- I, I, I just got to, I'm sorry to cut you up, but a quick, is some of that because of fake news, misinformation? Because a lot of that was going around that time too. Politicians making stuff up. Well, you know, the reason politicians truths. were able to do that is because- the information changed so frequently. It was a novel virus, so nobody really knew. And when you have that type of an environment, people then are gonna say, well, I don't trust that news because it's changing every day, and therefore I'm gonna say this or that. And that's where you get some of the, the other news that's going on that is absolutely false, but it's harder for us to combat that because the news is constantly changing and people won't trust it if it's changing to that degree. But what people need to understand is with a novel virus like that, um, they're going to have new information every day as they get further in and as they start to try stuff out. Again, it's a complex environment. It was actually a more chaotic environment, I would say, because there were so many unknowns and everybody just had to react. We had to take some actions, hope those actions worked. And then as we get got better information, we changed those decisions. Well, the, the public doesn't like that at all. 
they never have. They like to have that consistent message. And if they got that consistent message to say, here's exactly what you need to do, it would have all turned out very different than it did in, in the um, COVID pandemic. But I don't blame the leaders for that. They were working in a chaotic environment. They didn't have the information until they were able to test more things. And so that was a very difficult environment to be in. Nicely stated. I'm sorry to derail you, but the the misinformation, disinformation, rapidly changing information was so important right. as a crisis management challenge. Yes. I, th I thought it'd be worth mentioning. Okay. Well, and, so and yeah, okay. that note too, um, you know, we have three things that guide our program here in Larimer. One of those three things is social capital development. And what social capital is, is it's building trust, building connections and building networks. And uh, if you don't have trust with your community, that's where you're going to see a lot more of this misinformation. So um, social capital, I think, is something that also isn't talked a lot about in emergency management programs. But the research is crystal clear that if you do not have high social capital within your jurisdiction, within your community, um, they're not going to trust you. They're going to do their own thing. And they also won't recover, recover as well as those communities that have high social capital. So uh, um, as we've had this complexity approach, that's one part of our program. A second part is social capital. And then the third part, obviously, is consequence management. So those three-legged stool, um, all three of those things are equally important. What was the first one, social capital? Social capital is one, um, the complexity uh, theory and, and chaos theory is the second one. And then the third one is that consequence management. So, you know, going back to that fire or going back to that um, pandemic of 2020, as we're going through that pandemic and as we're trying to figure things out, we were also coming into wildfire season and we can't just ignore wildfire season because there's a pandemic. And what most people wouldn't realize is the amount of logistics that go into a wildfire um, season. You know, you have thousands of people who are coming in from all around the United States to help you manage a fire. In a pandemic, we're not going to get those people. We might have short staff. We might have people who are not willing to leave their area. So we had to plan for having a large scale wildfire without the resources we would normally have. And then if we got those resources, uh, they couldn't all be together like they normally are. Usually you have a base camp and you have everybody uh, sleeping in tents together. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do that. So we had to do a lot of planning early on. Um, I was in the emergency operations center during COVID and I, I came up to the group uh, during a briefing and I said, we need to start planning now for when we have that wildfire and how are we going to manage it? Because again, it's like we were already in chaos and we were going to have a complex event on top of that. Um, so we started planning early and I'm glad that we did because in 2020, we had a five month long wildfire, the largest fire in Colorado's history during the pandemic. So without that planning, we would have been kind of dead in the water. So let's talk about that because um, for the listeners and we have listeners across the age spectrum, entry level people, we have also senior people such as, such as uh, yourself and I. Um, for those that don't know or haven't, you know, watch the evening news, uh, Colorado and California, I'd say are, you know, run neck and neck in catastrophic forest fires. I, I, I use the word forest fire for a reason because my experience in Colorado was both wildland fires, uh, grass fires, which can be ex extremely, uh, burdenous and hazardous and catastrophic. They, they burn communities down, but also forest fires like Waldo Canyon. Right. And, and, and that's a segue into this fire you're going to talk about. Waldo Canyon was in Colorado Springs, 18,500 acre burn. 
352 homes burned in Colorado Springs, two deaths. What was this fire? What was the name of it? Uh, this was the Cameron Peak wildfire. So it burned over 200,000 acres. Uh, we lost about 500 structures. It was in the rural part of our county. Um, but at one point during the fire, over half of the county was evacuated. The entire western side of our county, which uh, Larimer County is a very big county. The eastern side is pretty urban with Fort Collins and Loveland. The western side is uh, more rural, but we also have Estes Park there. Um, so we ended up um, at some point during that fire, the entire western part of our county was evacuated. And again, um, this was a pandemic. So usually we would put people in a gym. We would open up a shelter. Well, we couldn't do that during the pandemic. So we had to put everybody up in hotels which in a way was kind of a good thing because the hotels were empty and they needed the, the business. So in a way, you know, we kind of saved our hotels during that fire by um, having all the evacuees, evacuees in what's those. The, what's the population of Larimer County? Uh, it's about almost 300,000-ish. Okay, th that's significant because I lived in an, in the second largest city in the state with a population of 500,000. You're in a a county, extraordinary large county with a very uh, a sp sparse, is that the right word? You have a, a rural population. Yeah, you do have urban areas. I get that. Eastern side, most of our yeah. population. And then the, the urban, I mean, the rural areas all along the West. And we have the Rocky Mountain National Park as part of our county as well that takes up a large amount. And then the um, Arapaho-Roosevelt National Forest is a, another large right. landmass within our county. Okay, so implications, uh, crisis management implications, and uh, I believe you were going to talk a little bit about chaos theory. Well, yeah, so with complexity and chaos, what we, well, we actually have a saying in our EOC, it, it, it's actually written up on the wall, it says chaos where great dreams begin, because chaos is where you don't have any answers, so you really get innovative. Um, you get those people who start thinking uh, not of what they know but they think of solutions that maybe nobody's thought of before. So we really have a philosophy in our EOC of flexibility and adaptability to move through whatever the challenges that we have. And that's what the chaos theory is because chaos theory, I'm not going to explain the entire thing to you, but um, uh, the big thing for me is the nonlinear uh, uh, approach. So with chaos theory, we cannot possibly predict what's going to be happening on any given day. And even if we have a wildfire, we can predict that Larimer County is going to have fires. We don't know where it's going to be. We don't know who it's going to impact. We don't know how it's going to move. It all depends on the weather, the terrain, the people that are involved. So there's a lot of inputs, right? So we could have a plan for wildfire, but any one of those inputs can take us off that plan. So that's the nonlinear piece is um, just you don't go in a straight line. You can't have a plan and go from A to Z and everything's going to work out. Something is going to take you off track. Um, so we have that model in our EOC where everybody just knows that it's okay to work in the unknown. Um, it's okay to fail because that means you're making some decisions, you're figuring things out, and you're going to get to the point where you're succeeding um, as you go forward. Complexity, um, what that means for me is you can't deconstruct these problems. You can't take them into their individual parts and pieces and say, oh, here's where the failure occurred. Let's fix that and everything's going to work now. Because every time you make a change in one area, you change the entire system. And uh, so you have to constantly be moving and changing things as you go through an event um, to make sure that you continue to succeed. Otherwise, if you make a change here, you could think one thing is going to happen, but it's going to be completely different. So and I'm thinking very high level now, and you and I Sorry. mentioned this the other day. Isn't this butterfly effect? 
Yeah, so the butterfly effect is nonlinearity. So a butterfly flaps its wings in one part of the world, and another part of the world you have a typhoon. The reason is because the flapping of the wings changes that airflow, which then changes something else, which changes something else. And along the way, you end up getting a storm because of all those changes. That's what butterfly effect is supposed to tell you. And, and that's what I'm talking about with um, our planning. And emergency management is a nonlinear world. We are a systems world. Uh, so um, you have to have people here who can handle kind of multiple inputs all at once. The situation that's constantly changing, a fair bit of stress there. Um, but it's kind of a good stress as long as you let go of the idea that you can control everything. You have to be able to kind of move through it instead of trying to control it. So five minutes to chaos is the name of the show. So of course, I, I, I love the discussion and I love the moniker, the chaos uh, is where great things begin. I think that's great. I think that's definitely a keeper and, and, it, and it, ma it makes a lot of sense. So how did this all apply to managing the wildfire? Um, a day in the life, a day in your life in the EOC, if there was like one particular day where it was just dis, I was going to say disorganized, but back to the Kinevin network, disorder, right? Emergency managers find order out of disorder. So let's use the word disorder, finding uh, your way through the chaos and making order out of uh, out of disorder. So you got a pandemic. Uh, you have uh, limited ability to to assemble. You have uh, a wildfire. Um, what was a your worst? What, sorry, <laughs> a lack of resources. Well, yeah. So, yeah. So, what was the worst day, and and how did all this apply, and how did you manage and overcome it? And, I I guess what I'm asking is how do how do these theories uh, apply? If I'm if I'm a new you know deputy working for you, you know, what do I need to know? Okay. So that's where we get to kind of that third leg of the stool of what our um, emergency management program is all about, the consequence management side, mm -hmm. because we know that we're not going to, we we don't have a clear path forward, right? So we have a group of people that get together in the emergency operations center and they do a consequence management plan, which is the what if scenarios. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if we lose a, um, a water treatment facility? What if we lose the radio tower? Uh, what if we can't get the resources that we need? They work through all that and then they determine who's needed to try to solve those problems ahead of time so that when those things happen or if something similar happens, we've already kind of worked through it and um, and we already have some plans in place. So the what if scenarios is a big part. The consequence management is a big part. I hear emergency managers talk a lot about consequence management, but I think they talk about it from a, a broad perspective, not necessarily the actions that are taken in an EOC. So for us, it's embedded into our process every day to look at that future planning, forward thinking, and the what if scenarios. And we don't limit at all. We look at all of our emergency support functions. We look at all of our lifelines. And for each of those, we do a what if analysis to determine what might happen. And an example from Cameron Peak is um, the fire, like I mentioned, was five months long. So it started in August. It wasn't fully... Um, uh, contained until December, and then it was considered controlled by January. Um, so we're coming into winter during this wildfire. Winter brings extreme winds in Colorado, like we talked about earlier. Sure. So we would have the fire blow up on multiple occasions. The fire would blow up. It would make a run. One day it was a 17-mile run that the fire made, causes damages, and then we had a bunch of snow come on top of that. So we'll have a couple feet of snow. People would think, oh, the fire's over. 
the fire's definitely not over. It's just sleeping for a couple of days. Uh, but then when we had that snow, people are evacuated and now they're worried about their pipes freezing, right? And uh, so one example is our water treatment plant didn't have a generator um, that could handle the, or that could ensure that the heat was on to keep that water treatment plant flowing. If that water treatment plant failed, it could spew uh, raw sewage into a, one of our river systems, which would then contaminate the water supply for millions of people downstream because Colorado is a water supply um, for multiple communities. So that tells you those cascade of events that start to occur. If you don't do a what if analysis and you don't start to look at this stuff ahead of time, um, once it happens, we're well behind, beyond the ball. And now you have a problem that is way worse than your original problem was. If we would have had that water contamination on top of the fire, on top of the, the pandemic, I can't even imagine how bad that would have been. So by us doing that what if analysis and by us working with our utility partners on the lifelines, they were able to tell us, hey, we need to fix this problem and put some resources to it. Otherwise, we're going to have a bigger problem downstream. We were able to mitigate that threat um, by doing the what if analysis. As a water utility emergency manager at one time, uh, I, I, we dealt with water contamination events and wastewater emergencies. I totally understand what what you're talking about. I want to ask a, a, a maybe a, a strange question, but what you're what you're describing is valuable and actionable, and pro should produce. Um, planning content that's usable during an emergency. Do you do this instead of an IAP or an incident action plan? Because I find the IAP to be more of a, um, a plan that details, uh, designates resources and command structures and, and, and stuff like that, but doesn't really get into the nuances or the known and unknown tactical and strategic needs of a disaster. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So we do, like with everything, we do a hybrid approach. So uh, we've adapted our process for this need. So most everything is driven off of our situation report, which we do daily, which gives the entire picture of everything that we know that's going on. It has not only the EOC priorities, but it also has the consequence management priorities. So what's next that our EOC is gonna be working on? Um, as far as the incident action plan, we have components of that, like the 203 contact list. That's just always available to folks. We don't do a daily um, IAP anymore. We just have the information available, like the medical plan, the comm plan, the contact list, the EOC objectives. Those are all always available to folks um, and they're up. And in our briefing, we'll talk through that um, in our morning briefing, but we don't provide everybody a plan. The one exception to that is the 204s within the Emergency Operations Center. We do a lot of work in Larimer County, which is with field units. So it could be the Red Cross, which is through the EOC, not through the incident command system. So we track them through a 204. We could have debris operators, damage assessment operators, um, and others that are out there who are working directly for the Emergency Operations Center instead of working for the incident management team. And for those folks, we do fill out the 204s so we know where they're at each day, how to contact them. And where this was important too was when we were having, we had the big fire and then the next year, obviously you have the flood risk. We had damage and debris operators in the field. We had to be able to connect with them when there were flash flood warnings to get them out of those canyons before the, 
the weather got so bad where they might be stuck into a flash flood. That's great. Here we are again, talking about an adaptable system. I'm not suggesting or didn't mean to suggest ICS uh, procedures or forms are not valuable. I find that the IAP uh, just needed, it could, could probably do with a revision. And, it, yeah. you know, ICS is uh, 54 years old. It, it was started in 1970. I, I'm not sure how much has changed over the 53 years. It was started, for those that don't know, as part of a fire school program in California to approach wildfires. And over the years, it grew to structure fires, law enforcement operations, and emergency management, then became part of NIMS about 20 years ago. And, uh, and, and so good stuff there, just just trying to figure out, like you're doing, from an academic and operational perspective, what's next? What's on the horizon? Because things are changing. It's getting, it's getting hairy out there. We are in a constant state of crisis, uh, globally and domestically, and we have to be ready to respond. Yeah, and even just from a wildfire perspective, I've heard multiple incident commanders recently say we're seeing conditions we've never seen before. So they have to adapt on the fly as well, and they've learned that. And I think what happened with the incident command system is. It was meant to be flexible from the very beginning, and then it ended up becoming a very rigid system just because of how people used it. And so now people don't see this flexible. It it should be able to, the incident command system is built to adapt and to move through a, a um, complex event where they're either, um, it gets bigger, gets smaller, you add positions as you need to add positions, whatever you need to do. So people just need to understand that it's a flexible approach. It is good for the field. Uh, we use a hybrid approach in the EOC where we use some ICS models, but again, it doesn't cover all of our, like the ICS is a vertical hierarchy. Um, in an EOC, you have more of a horizontal hierarchy. So we had to adapt to that as well to ensure that our nonprofit partners, volunteers, those who don't work for us, um, they can come in and they can provide assistance, give us information, but they also have that autonomy um, to do their jobs. I think that's great. Uh, that ties directly into the the nature of five minutes to chaos, which is to talk about uh, crisis management approaches that might be a, a bit different. I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I have been working within the ICS structure or a variant of it for, for decades. Um, my team and I, you know, developed one utility based one in Colorado and it worked for us. And we, you know, we integrated very easily with, with the county. We got a call one day from uh, from the county director. Um, I was actually the deputy at the time. There was the, the 104 fire down, I was exit 104. So the 104 fire down in 95, huge grass fire, hundreds of acres. And uh, they wanted to know if my team could uh, staff the planning section in the county EOC. Well, we did that for three days. I sent a couple of people over and we were the planning chief, You know, uh, probably sit, sit unit that kind of thing. So yeah, we have to use those structures to support each other. But at, at the same time, ICS needs to be adaptable. It needs to be nimble. And uh, it, you need to be able to incorporate others, ad hoc crisis management structures where they exist. You know, not every incident needs ICS either. I, right. I've been involved in many incidents where, you know, you just, you get a, you get a, a group of people in a room, somebody's in charge, somebody calls the shots, makes some decisions and you're done in an hour uh, or, or not. But, um, you know, as, as an incident grows, you have to adapt to it. No question there. Yeah. And the one thing I would say, kind of a final thing with that too, is um, if you build this approach in, in your emergency management program and in your emergency operations center, 
it really decreases the stress of your personnel because the biggest cause of stress for personnel is they feel like they need to have the information and they need to know how to act on everything. And if you allow them to understand that sometimes you're not going to know until it happens and you're just going to have to move through it, if you have that grace um, to give them, I have found that people react a lot better in the emergency operations center. Their stress level is down. Uh, they don't burn out as soon because they understand that I'm not, I'm just never going to have all of the answers all the time and that's going to be okay. I think that, I think that's great. You know, I come from, I've been around emergency management so long that I come from a time where it was a badge of honor, sort of like when you or I were paramedics, right? It was a badge yeah. of honor to have a little blood on your shirt, Yeah. And, you know, and then somewhere around time I came into EMS, there was this thing called AIDS and, and, and you became, you know, more aware of health risks. It was a badge of honor to, you know, be up in the EOC for three days. And I think you become marginally uh, ineffective at, at some point. So um, people need to know that they're cared for, that they are, that their personal needs, meaning from a family perspective, are going to be met and that they're going to be um, less stressed. The job itself is stressful enough. Right. The, the, the job, meaning the incident, right? That's a New York term, right? So the job itself is stressful enough. A, a 500,000 acre wildfire, I, I'm not sure that's the number you said, but a, a 20,000 acre wildfire plus a pandemic is stressful enough. We need to de-stress. We need to de-conflict stress to make it easier for our professional emergency managers and our or volunteers and our peers from other agencies that are supporting us in the EOC to navigate through these things using these different theories and philosophies that you brought to the table today. Yeah, and emergency managers are being asked to do more and more things that they've never done before. So it's even more important too, um, to uh, think about the stress levels and how you can use these models to try to decrease that stress. Another example quickly of this is I was in somebody else's emergency operations center when they were doing a mass evacuation and the evacuation seemed to be stalled on all the roads and on the highway. And the news media had that up and it was in the EOC and everybody in the emergency operations center was stressed about that. And uh, the emergency management director was next to me and he just kept on saying, people are gonna die if we don't solve this, people are gonna die. And I said, can you do anything about this situation right now? And he said, no. And I said, well, then you need to focus on something else because um, everybody in the room was just staring at the monitors, but it's not something they have any control over. So by all of them considering that stress and the fact that they wanted to do something, but they couldn't, that caused mass anxiety in that room. And so I just told him, you should turn off those monitors and you should focus on what you can focus on and uh, start getting these people moving through a solution that'll help them decrease their stress. And then they're also going to see a way out of this, but they had no control over what was going on in the field and the fact that that fire was blowing up. So that's another example. That's a great philosophy. You know, I think you'll agree that uh, the emergency, and you started to allude to this, Lori, the emergency manager of today is no longer just the hurricane and flood crowd. Exactly. Right. We are not. Right. Today we are asked to deal with complex crises that we couldn't have imagined years ago. Now, when I was in New York City OEM, in the 90s, we were dealing with complex crisis preparedness. We were told by powers to be that we had a terrorist threat against New York City. So 
fast forward to 9-11, that was certainly true. Uh, we were told that there's the potential for biological weapons to be used in the United States. Fast forward to 2002, we have the anthrax attacks in New York City and Washington, D.C. So, but today's emergency managers, and by the way, any emergency manager that forgets that we have that terrorist threat should realize that it still exists, right? We had uh, Dr. Usha George on the podcast a, a few episodes ago. She is the executive director of biodefense for the United States Congress, and she has uh, a message out there for emergency managers. I would encourage uh, uh, our colleagues listening to this to find that episode because we're not done with the bio uh, and, and chemical weapons threat. But today's emergency managers have to deal with active shooter events, have to the deal with... Crisis. Oh, is that opioid crisis? Right. right. We have to deal with uh, political violence, potential at least for, for, for political violence. And the one big one that emergency managers, I don't think have dipped their toe in the appropriate waters yet, cyber. You know, when Absolutely. you talk about a cyber attack, it's not a cyber security. You know, Mike Willis used to say this. Uh, Mike Willis, uh, of course, Lori and I know he's a state director of emergency management, in Colorado. He used to say and he and he did a couple of briefings for us on the C dot uh, ransomware attack, and he came down to to the springs, and he said, you know, us uh, it's not just. Uh, Cyber is not just a you know a cyber thingy. That's a cyber security event is not a cyber thingy. Meaning it has broader implications. So right. when when you have a cyber attack on your water supply and you're unable to produce a finished drinking water, that's an emergency manager's problem. What is your drinking water contingency plan? Well, Absolutely. Colorado Springs has one because. You know, my team and I developed one. Yeah. Well, but we were a water utility. And and I'm just using that as an example. But when the lights go out because of a cyber attack or like the C dot attack, when the variable message signs don't work across the state and they can't collect tolls, uh, and twenty thousand computers get trashed, what do you what do you what do you do about that? It's an emergency management problem. Why is it an emergency management problem? Because the governor made it an emergency management problem by activating the state EOC and putting the uh uh, state emergency manager and a, a, a state chief information officer in a unified command position. Yeah, absolutely. We're dealing with all kinds of stuff and they're calling us for any number of things that might happen that we've never faced before. Yeah. Oh yeah. I got, I got New York city stories, which would be for another time, but uh, I hope to, uh, you know, to see you again at some point, some trip to Colorado and, and we could, we, we, we could share a, a meal and, and, and tell some stories because, you know, you got some, and I got some certainly probably even more fun would be the EMS stories. That's true. <laughs> Those are always a lot of fun. Yeah. Wow. That was great. Uh, we're coming up on an hour. Um, just some, some high level notes. Um, different frameworks for decision making that are out there, the OODA loop model, the Kinevin model. Um, uh, is the MCAS uh, paper available? Is that avail available publicly or how can how can people access that? Uh, I don't know if it's on any website, the white paper that we did. Uh, right. It used to be, I think, on the state website, but I'm not sure if it is anymore. Um, we do have the article, though, that Mike uh, and I worked on that was through the uh, Journal of Business Continuity and Emergency Planning. So right. that journal article is from that white paper. It's uh, kind of the ideas from that that we- Okay, if somebody about. wants that, could I distribute that or can you- Yeah, that's available online through the Business Continuity and Emergency Planning, um, that journal. Okay, oh, very good. Okay, very good. So um, 
Business Continuity and Emergency Planning Journal. I remember when it was published there. Uh, and I would encourage people to find it because it really talks about um, the the linear nature of emergency management and how we need to develop a more uh, adaptable model. Well, that's the name of it, uh, to, to meet with the complexities of, of today's world. And we just spent an hour talking about emergency management complexity. Um, I'm looking at, uh, oh, I love consequence planning. That's absolutely critical. Um, and and you did not just, you know, set ICS documents on the side, use a hybrid approach, which is fantastic. But doing the what if, I mean, that's it right there, right? I love to, every episode should have a, a learning morsel for old dogs like myself. And I'm walking away from here with, yeah, I mean, it, I've heard of consequence, you know, crisis of consequence management. I don't know if you remember, but that was the old FEMA FBI counterterrorism model. And I worked in that model on 9-11. We had the crisis of consequence management stood up with the FBI jock. We had the FEMA JFO and the city EOC, all that stuff. But um, it's important to have that, uh, that, that, that consequence management, what if planning, what if scenarios. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for joining. It was great to see you and great to chat with you about this. I remember feeling very energized when we would have those meetings, uh, the, the roundtable meetings. And, uh, and you know, we were doing those meetings over conference calls before even Zoom. And now, you know, the pandemic hit. Now, you know, here we are in Zoom. We're, yeah, you know, recording, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, we're yeah. recording stuff. So, well, thanks for having me. I do appreciate it. Oh, it's it's great to see you. I hope we'll continue to stay in touch as we have over the years. I want to thank uh, Lori Hodges for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing her experience and crisis management theories. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert so you know when an episode drops. I welcome your comments or questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or directed to me on LinkedIn. Until next time, embrace the chaos. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.